In Rome's time, it had a population of over 100,000. That's a huge city for this time. Rome, at the same period of time, had a population of about a million. Jerusalem probably had a population of maybe 20,000 at this time. Uh, Alexandria had a population of 500,000. Uh, Antioch, Assyria, the, the third biggest city, was probably a couple hundred thousand. So it's a big, big city. There's two major roads that intersect. Uh, so it's, it's a trade center. Uh, heavily Roman influence. There's a, a Roman garrison there to make sure. Remember what Becca said that the official Roman motto was? Peace and security, right? You saw that written everywhere. In fact, if you go through this, you'll still see that engraved in some of the Roman uh, ruins. Peace and security. That was their, that was, I'm trying to think what America's uh, motto would be. Live free or die. Live free or die. There you go. That's die hard, but that's right. Oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but that's the, everywhere the Romans, it's like peace and security, peace and security, peace and security. Uh, and so they had, a, they had a garrison here. Uh, it's Greek, so there are lots of temples. You know, the Greeks have, I don't know, 14 major gods and probably 30 minor gods. Uh, and then plus, if you wanted to worship some of the Egyptian gods, you could do that. The Greeks were pretty flexible. Uh, so in so Thessalonica, your, your social group was kind of the temple that was your main temple. Uh, you know, was it Aphrodite, was it Zeus, was it Isis? Uh, all those gods had temples, and that's kind of the crowd you hung with. Uh, and also in Thessalonica, you have a very heavy Epicurean influence. Epicurus is one of the philosophies. Stoics, Cynics, Epicurean. You, you may remember this from high school. Eat, drink, party, for tomorrow I die. That's the philosophy of Epicurus. He, uh, it's all about pleasure. Whatever brings me pleasure is why the gods gave me the ability to experience pleasure. So I should do everything that makes me feel good. That's Epicurean. This area is heavily Epicurean. What's very important for the Epicurean is there's no afterlife in their philosophy. Once you're dead, you're dead. In fact, if you this is Latin that's on, on a lot of gravestones in that area, uh, which means I wasn't, I was, I am not, I am not concerned, or I don't care. That's the Epicurean philosophy. So you have to layer that on top of who Paul's writing to. Because we tend to interpret things the way we are, and so we have a very strong uh, because we have 2,000 years of Christian theology, we have a very strong afterlife theology. The Greeks did not. Most of the Christians are Greek. They're not, the Jews definitely did, well, sort of did. If you're a Sadducee, not so much. If you're a Pharisee, you definitely had an afterlife philosophy or theology. So, uh, the Jews understood about afterlife. The Greeks, by and large, didn't. Uh, and, and especially if you were an Epicurean. And Epicureans was, is a, think of a philosophy. Do you want to be a cynic? 
You know, the cynics are questioning everything, right? Nobody wants to hang with the cynics. They're bo you know, everything you say, they quit. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, Epicureans are fun to hang with, right? Because their whole thing is, it, life's a party. For the Enneagrams, it's an Enneagram, what's that, seven? They're all Enneagram sevens. Uh, life is a party. Uh, and so... Could you raise your hand if you're a seven? <laughs> or can your spouse raise your hand if your spouse is a seven? <laughs> uh, so the, the Epicureans, by and large, were pretty uh, expansive in this area. In fact, we see when Paul gets down to Athens, that's who asked him to talk on Mars Hill, are the Stoics and the Epicureans. And when he starts talking about afterlife, the, the Epicureans say, oh, we're done with you. The Stoics like it. The Epicureans don't. Uh, so that's the overlay of, of this area. A lot of the Greeks that Paul converts would be coming out of this influence, which is that there's no afterlife. Everything's about pleasure today. All right, and just to remind you, the map... So, you know, Paul starts here, wanders his way through here. This takes a little bit of time. That's why it's a seven, this is why it's a seven-year journey. Uh, comes to Troas, across to Philippi. Uh, that's where Lydia is. Starts working his way down the coast. Gets to Thessalonica, which is the major city in here. Uh, spends about six weeks, maybe. We know he spent three weeks. And at some point after that, he gets kicked out. Uh, like kicked out, as in don't ever come back kicked out. It's not this not like hey you know go away for a while. This is like don't ever show back up here. Uh, and then he goes down the coast of Berea, gets in trouble in Berea again. Same people. Sails down the coast to Athens, spends a little time in Athens, then goes to Corinth, spends a year and a half in Corinth. Uh, the first so we think First Thessalonians was written in Athens. We think 2 Thessalonians is written in Corinth. He moves between the two. And then this is from Acts. Uh, a couple of highlights here. Uh, you know, in life, it's all about money, sex, or power, right? So when you cause trouble, you're causing, it, it comes from one of those three things. Uh, so Paul comes, in, comes to Thessalonica, goes to the synagogue. He, re he reasons with them. Uh, for three Sabbath days, three weeks. Uh, and he, some of the Jews were persuaded. A large number of the God-fearing Greeks. Remember, you could choose as a Greek or a Roman to, to believe what you want to believe. So there was a large number of Greeks who were monotheistic. They believed the Jewish God, which would have made them a little odd in their, in their city. Because everyone else is, I'm Zeus, I'm... I'm Diana, I'm Aphrodite. Uh, but these, there were Greeks that were proselytites to Judaism. And when you also, a large number of God-feeling Greeks, by that he means Greek men. Remember, you know, this is a, this is a male-dominated society. Uh, from a Roman standpoint, you could be a Roman man, you could be a Greek man as you're stepping down, you could be a slave, or you could be a woman. It's in that order. So when you, when you read what they write, remember the culture in which they're writing. And quite a few prominent women. When they say prominent women, what they mean 
is mutt rich. This is about money. This is not about power, because the women don't have any. It's not about sex. This is about money. Prominent women. So who was... Remember, the Jews are not on top of this society. The Jews that make the synagogue are workers, and they're on the lower half of the economic scale. So prominent women are probably supporting the synagogue. So when you look at this through that lens, you realize why the, why the Jews are going so nuts when Paul recruits all these people away, because that's, that's where the money is in Thessalonica. And then there's a riot. And I like this. They ran out some bad characters from the marketplace. <laughs> we all know those guys, you know, because remember, this is 100,000 people, it's a big city. There's always those guys hanging around that you can get to do whatever. And that's what the, which is really funny that the Jews, who are notorious for separating themselves from bad behavior, know who these guys are. And they go and they round them up, say, hey, come with me. And they, they start a riot. Uh, they can't find Paul and Silas, so they drag Jason, uh, and then they talk about they've caused trouble all over the world. Paul hasn't caused trouble all over the world. Now, if you're a Jew, he's caused you trouble, right? Because he's going to all these other synagogues in the last year and a half. This first missionary journey plus this one, telling you, oh, wait a minute, the Messiah has come, and so people are splitting the synagogues. The Romans don't care about the Christians. They're not big enough now to cause any problems. Uh, but the Jews do. And they're defying the decree, de decrees and saying there's another one, king, who is Jesus. Now the Romans are interested. Peace and security. Peace and security. Paul's threatening security. So uh, they make Jason post bond, which is money. And uh, they sent Paul and Silas away. And the part of that bond is Paul and Silas can't come back because they started a riot. Again, Romans, peace and security, peace and security. So they're saying, nope, do not show back up in this city because you caused a riot last time you were here. And so if they show back up, Jason loses his bond and actually goes to jail. All right, so that's the background. And then, so Paul, so they... Paul's here for six weeks, leaves, leaves Timothy, goes down to Athens. Timothy helps establish a church, comes and meets him in Athens. As soon as he's there, they hear letters, there is, they hear things about the church. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, and then he sends Timothy back up. Timothy then, Paul moves to Corinth, Timothy then goes to Thessalonica, gets things settled, comes back and meets Paul in Corinth. And then they hear more stuff, which is now the basis of 2 Thessalonians. There are more, more problems, and so Paul's going to write another letter back to them. So these two letters are fairly close in time, a few months difference probably. And let's see if I can... Going high tech here. So not long after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a report about the Christians in Thessalonica, that the problems he had addressed in that letter not only had continued, but had gotten worse. The persecutions had intensified, and the Thessalonian Christians had become confused and scared about the return of Jesus. 
So Paul sent off this short letter, which is designed to have three sections that address the three problems in this church. Paul first offers hope in the midst of their continued persecution. And then he offers clarity about the coming day of the Lord. And then finally, he brings a really specific challenge to the idol, people who were refusing to work normal jobs. And the end of each of these sections is clearly marked by a short closing prayer. Paul opens with a thanksgiving prayer for the Thessalonians' continued faithfulness and love, and specifically for their endurance. He's learned that their Greek and Roman and perhaps even Jewish neighbors have intensified their persecution of these Christians. They're a religious minority facing violent oppression. And Paul's worried that they might give up on Jesus if it gets worse. So Paul reminds them, like he did in the first letter, that their suffering because of being associated with Jesus, it's a way of participating in God's kingdom. Jesus was inaugurated as king by his suffering on the cross. And so his followers will show their victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolence and patient endurance. Paul also reminds them that this won't last forever. When Jesus returns, he will bring his justice to bear on those that have oppressed them and shed the blood of the innocent. Specifically, he says that their punishment is to be banished away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul does not speculate here on the fate of those who reject Jesus, except to say that throughout their lives they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and in the end, they get what they want. Relational distance from their creator and their king. And for Paul, this is the ultimate tragedy, to choose separation from Jesus, who is the source of all life and love, is to embrace one's own undoing. He closes this thought by praying that God would use their suffering to bring about deep character change inside of them, so that their lives would bring honor to the name of Jesus. Paul then moves on to address a specific issue related to the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord. So somebody in the Thessalonian church community had been spreading wrong information in Paul's name, saying that God's final act of justice on human evil, the day of the Lord, it was upon them, it has come. And these people had likely been predicting dates about the end of all things, and they were frightening other Christians. And you can see why. Due to the intense persecution, they were vulnerable to somebody claiming that Jesus had already returned like a thief in the night. They'd been left behind. Maybe he abandoned the Thessalonians to their suffering. This kind of talk really ticks Paul off. It's misrepresenting his teaching. The return of Jesus should never inspire fear, but rather hope and confidence. Paul reminds them of everything he taught them about Jesus' return back when he was in town. And he gives a short summary here. It's actually too short. This paragraph has lots of puzzles and problems of interpretation. But what's clear is that he cites the well-known theme from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, that the kingdoms of this world will continue to produce rulers who rebel against God, like Nebuchadnezzar or the king of the north did in the past. These leaders had exalted themselves to divine authority. And for Paul, these ancient kings and prophecies, they give us images, they set out a pattern that he saw fulfilled in his own day in the Roman emperors, Caligula and Nero, and he expected that it would be repeated again. That history would culminate with such a rebellious ruler, empowered by evil itself, someone who will wreak havoc and violence in God's world, but not forever. When Jesus returns, he will confront the rebel and all who perpetrate evil, and he will deliver his people. So Paul's point here is not to give later readers fuel for apocalyptic speculation, 
Rather, he's comforting the Thessalonians. He's recalling the teachings of Jesus from Mark chapter 13, who said that the events leading up to his return would be very public and obvious. And so they don't need to be scared or worried that they've been left behind. Rather, they need to stay faithful until Jesus returns to deliver them. And so in his closing prayer, he asked Jesus and the Father to comfort and strengthen the Thessalonians to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. Which brings Paul to the final topic. It's a challenge for those who were idle, which doesn't just mean lazy. But this refers to people who were irresponsible and who refused to work and provide for themselves, resulting in chaotic personal lives. So Paul had actually addressed this problem in his first letter, and it seems like it's gotten worse. Now, we don't know for certain why some people in this church were refusing to work. It's possible that this problem is connected to the previous one. Maybe some people thought Jesus would return very soon, and so they quit their jobs and dropped out of normal life. But it's more likely that Paul's addressing a problem related to a practice in Roman culture called patronage. So you'd have poor people living in cities, and they would become clients, kind of like personal assistants to wealthy people. And they would live off of their occasional generosity, but there were lots of strings attached. This sometimes involved the clients in their patron's morally corrupt way of life, not to mention it was unpredictable income. So this is what Paul seems to refer to when he says these people lead a disordered life. They're not working and they're meddling in the business of others. So Paul reminds them of the example he gave when he was with them. He didn't ask for their money. He worked a manual labor job so he could provide for himself and so he could serve the Thessalonians free of charge. He says this is the ideal. A follower of Jesus should imitate Jesus' self-giving love by working hard so they can provide for themselves and so their lives can be a benefit to other people. He concludes this with a final prayer, that in the midst of all their confusion and suffering, that God would grant them peace through the Lord Jesus the Messiah. This short letter to the Thessalonians, it helps us see that the early Christian belief in Jesus' return and the hope of final judgment, these ideas were not meant for generating speculation about apocalyptic timelines. Rather, these beliefs brought hope they inspired faithfulness and devotion to Jesus, especially for persecuted Christians facing violent opposition. And so for later generations of Christians, whether they undergo persecution or not, this letter reminds us that what you hope for shapes what you live for. And that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about. All right, simple enough, right? So if we see you staring at your phone, you're really just studying. That's right. <laughs> More importantly, for this class, we're at, that's also my clock. Since that clock is done. All right. It's good. Yeah, temperamental here. So I like how they say this is a, a, the middle section is a simple section. I look at, there are three sections in 2 Thessalonians. Two white bread sections that are pretty easy to understand. And then this really complex, Pauline theology complex section about the, the second coming stuck in, in between. 
So I, I can prove definitive about first and last. The middle part is, is difficult. Uh, as you can think of all the theology that's written, that's developed over time over the second coming. All, a lot of it comes out of, when you look at what's written in the Bible, about the New Testament about the second coming, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. And there's a little teeny part in Mark that they talked about. That's it. Uh, and so we have a lot of theology that's created off, off a little bit of Bible. And uh, that can be problematic. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about love and service and money and family and a little bit about the second coming. But we argue a lot about the second coming. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Second Thessalonians. Very typical book. Starts with a prayer. There's a prayer for each transition. Ends with a prayer. Uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first part, he talks about the fact that it's a reiterating what he did in the last letter. Uh, that, yes, you're being per persecuted, but that just shows that you are living a, a, a righteous life, that the evil persecutes you. Uh, and that, uh, remember, because as they convert to Christianity, they were removed from their pagan temples. And so you get a lot of social pushback at that point. And, you know, and Paul basically says, you know, all this evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So he's very reiterating again. And we know, and we'll see it in just a second, somebody wrote a letter or said he got a letter from Paul and is telling them things that Paul didn't say. We'll see it in this next section. But think about it. Paul established his church in six weeks. How much theology can he push out, push to you? And it's all oral. There's nothing written down because the only books written at this point, James's letter, and a couple years before this, Paul wrote Galatians. Nothing else is written down. So everything is sitting at his feet and teaching. So in six weeks, Paul establishes his church and he gets thrown out of town and he leaves Timothy. So they have a lot, you know, a lot of this is all verbal. So when someone comes in and says, hey, Paul wrote me a letter. Here's what he said. And, you know, and they have questions about the second coming. Uh, and so, you know, Paul just reminds them that, yes, God is coming back, and he is in charge. And exactly what the little video said, the biggest, the worst thing Paul says that can happen to you is you can be separated from God. Uh, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified. To Paul, that's the worst thing. You get separated from God. So to Paul, hell is separation from God. Heaven is being with God. Hell is being separated from God. And then he again ends with a prayer. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. May be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he transitions.
Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily unsettled and alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or word of mouth or by letter. So someone has come in and said, I, yeah, yeah, I was with Paul. Paul sent me a letter. Here's what he said. Uh, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, and so that he sets, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is where culture becomes very important. This is our chronology. The church and has Jewish members and Greek members, who are Greeks who were God-fearing, meaning they were they practiced Judaism before they converted. Our little friend here, Caligula. Uh, when they say in the first century, when they say man of lawlessness, a lot of times they're talking about Caligula. Uh, Caligula was not a popular emperor. Uh, he almost single-handedly started the Jewish rebellion uh, 40, uh, 30 years before it actually occurred. Caligula was the first of the Roman emperors to crown himself a god Why he was alive. And he put up statues of himself everywhere. He created temples everywhere to Caligula. He is friends with uh, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. So he, who is a Jew, or semi-Jew, uh, he knows Judaism. So Caligula decides in AD 41 that what he ought to do is put a statue of himself in Herod's temple in Jerusalem. And not just anywhere, put it in the Holy of Holies. Tear down, tear down the, the partition, put a tent, statue of himself, and make all the Jews come and sacrifice to himself, because he's a god. How do you think the Jews would have gone with that? Yeah, I mean, they don't like Paul talking about Jesus. You can imagine, the last time someone did this was Antichrist Epiphanes IV, uh, which... Uh, was a rule. He was he was one of the uh, descendants of uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, he conquered the Holy Land, was now the Holy Land, and went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. That triggered the Maccabean Rebellion, which caused the Jews to be independent for 250 years. The same thing would have occurred had Caligula done this. Now the interesting part is we have letters from Marcellus and Agrippa telling him, don't do this. Don't, do not do this. Because that will cause a rebellion. And then the, what happens is part of this, the army gets involved and they realized if Caligula does this, we're going to have to send most of the Roman army to this armpit part of the world that has no money that we don't, don't really want and a lot of our guys are going to die and other enemies will take advantage of that. And so that's one of the reasons that the Praetorian Guard end up killing Caligula, is that he gets out of control. But to the Jews, everyone knows the story, that he about did that. 
And so Claudius is now uh, emperor. We're right about here. But people remember the fact that Caligula did that. So a lot of... But, but can I say... Yes, go ahead. But from the time of Caligula, in all Roman provinces, there were temples built. Yes. This is, this is the beginning of emperor worship, which is culminates in Revelation. And it's a huge, huge deal. Yes, it's a huge, huge deal. And it's... So to the Jews and the monotheistic Gentiles, who are now Christian, this is a big deal. Because... The emperor is asking you to worship him. And so when they talk about the man of lawlessness, a lot of times people are talking about the Roman emperor. So what you have are someone who came back to Thessalonica, told the people, yeah, the man of lawlessness has already come. That was Caligula. So therefore, Paul told me that Jesus is about to come. So... Quit your jobs. Uh, just do what you're going to do, you know. And God is coming. And then someone else says, "Oh, God, Jesus has already come, and you guys missed the boat. You're leftovers." Uh, what was that series of books in the late the eighties, nineties? Left behind. Yes, very similar to that. Uh, and so you you get this. Uh, these feeling the people are very apprehensive. They're going like, wait a minute, Jesus, Jesus already coming, and, and I didn't know. Uh, and then Paul reminds them, remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, but so that he may be revealed at the proper time. The power of lawlessness, lawlessness is already at work, and then he quotes Isaiah. The Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That also is a power thing. Jesus doesn't have to fight him. With literally his words, he's going to overthrow the lawless. Uh, and then uh, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And in all ways, the wickedness deserves those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so they saved. Back to his theme again, which is that you love God, you love the truth, and that's what saves you. It's not, it's not works, it's that. And so the end, end of chapter 2, uh, we thank you for brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because he chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and belief and truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you may share in the glory of Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you by word or mouth or by letter. Again, saying, listen to what I wrote. Don't listen to what someone else is saying that I wrote. Remember what I taught you originally. And then there's this prayer, the transition prayer. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who is loved by us and our grace, give encouragement, good hope, encourage your hearts, and strengthen you in every good word or deed. Then he transitions to his next part. So this middle part of Thessalonians is difficult because, as I said in the film, because there's so many interpretations. Is it premillennial? Is it amillennial? Is it postmillennial? Is that all four? I hit all four? Yeah, I think so. Uh, or dispensation premillennials. Everybody has theories on, on how they interpret this section. 
Paul, Paul is not trying to be predictive here. He's not saying this is what's going to happen. What he's trying to do is he is pastoral. He is saying, everyone just settle it down a little bit. Settle it down. Don't fear. Christ has not come. The people, you know, the first Thessalonian letter, you know, people who are dead, they're going to rise when Jesus comes. You're not, once you die, you're not, it's not the end. This is, this is Paul being pastoral. He's just basically saying, everybody calm down. Peace. Jesus will, will straighten stuff out when he comes. He may, you know, in the last Thessalonians, he's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when he comes. But when he comes, you're going to know it. It's not like he's going to come, oh, he's come and gone and I didn't know it. So he's, when he comes, you're going to know it. And that's what Paul's reminding them. And then he goes into chapter 3, the last part of this book. Uh, Keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Again, reinforcing the teaching that I gave you or that Timothy gave you. Uh, Not the supposed letter that you got. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. In those days, teachers were supported by their disciples. It was routine that you would just, you know, just like we give tithes today, you'd give tithes to your teacher. And Paul says, wait a minute, we were here, we did not ask for anything. We worked by ourselves, he's a tent maker, uh, worked day and night, labor and toil. So basically made tents during the day or leather products during the day and night he taught. Uh, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. One who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Unwilling does not mean cannot work. It means doesn't want to work. Uh, so it's people who are intentionally idle. It's not, I'm, I'm too poor, I don't have a job. It's like, I've got a job, I really don't want to go. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. When you read all Pauline literature, disruptive and disorderly and undisciplined is an overriding theme every time he writes. Uh, they are not busy, but they are busybodies. That's actually a Greek. He's playing in Greek there. Those are two words very similar to each other. That's the New Testament's definition of social media. Yes, busybody. Those who are not busy, they're busybody, yeah. They're on their Facebook too much, and they're posting too much Instagram and Twitter. Uh, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food you eat, i.e., get a job, work. Don't sit and beg and be dependent on other people. But then he turns around right around and says, As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Because what he said in the last letter, what is good? Support those people that need help. That's his definition of doing good. Uh, so, and that's, so he's basically giving you an algorithm that looks at it and says, Here's who you help and here's who you don't help. If you can help, because remember, you go back to Galatians. What did Paul say? Bear one another's burdens, but at the same time, carry your own backpack. And so it's this balance of you're supposed to do what you can for yourself in order that you can help other people. So if you're laying around being a busybody and you're not earning money, you can't do your, act, your job as a Christian, which is help those who are less fortunate than you. That is Christianity 101 to Paul. Uh, and take special note of anyone who does not obey an instructions letter. So now Paul's being bad. He's like, all right, 
here's what you're supposed to do. Uh, you know, he talks about being family in the first letter, and, he, and now he's dad. Uh, do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. They may feel ashamed. Uh, but do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So he's not saying excommunicate, don't have anything to do with them. Just treat them like what they are, which are people who are ignoring or aren't acting like a Christian. They're not taking care of people less fortunate than themselves. And then, and then the very end, because whoever's last letter, Paul says, this is from me. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So basically, Paul probably dictated most of the letter, and at the end, hand wrote it himself. So what he's saying is, if someone says they have a letter from me, I do this every time. Look for my signature. Look for my mark on this letter. And part of this is since these letters are meant to be read out loud, this is also a reminder of whoever's reading out loud to turn around and show the letter and go, look, this is Paul's signature. So that we know this is from Paul. And then the last prayer, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's Paul's wrap up. Alright, any questions in the next three minutes about uh, eschatology? <laughs> well, well We've got, I've got elders in here. We're going to throw it to them if you ask me any questions. I don't... Yes? Well, I, I'm curious, like, why... Uh, do we have a sense of where he was coming up with this stuff? Wh which stuff? Paul. I mean, in his instructions, I mean, like, uh, I don't know how much time he interfaced with Jesus, but, like, where does it come from, these instructions that he's giving? Is it just interpretation of what... He heard about Jesus. I mean, he wasn't exactly sitting at Jesus' feet most of his life, right? I mean, well, I mean, Jesus says, "I am the fulfillment of the law." So, if you look at the old, God doesn't change. The way you're supposed to treat people has been the same throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, I mean, the Jews were called specifically to support those people that were less well off than they are. You know, if you know, I'll pull up. Some Leviticus, where he says, you know, if there's a foreigner, you treat them like your brother. So it's not, so Paul, so Jesus' teachings are basically calling them back to the God's original plan, which is that we're all one big family. And, uh, you know, I think that was the video a couple weeks ago. You know, we're, we're a giant family. And yes, God set apart the Jews for a specific purpose, but now that Jesus has come, we're now all back in the same family. And we treat everybody like their family. And so this, I think, is Paul... Uh, I mean, now you're asking how much is the Holy Spirit guiding him? Probably a fair amount. Because, you know, Paul says you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I think... But a lot of this is back to original Judaism, which, well, actually, pre-Judaism Old Testament. You know, because as... I was listening this weekend, you know, Aaron reminds everyone, Abraham was not a Jew, right? Because Judah doesn't show up until he's his grandson. So you can't be a Jew until, uh, not Judah, Jacob. Uh, Judah was his great-grandson. So you can't be a Jew until the Jews show up. Abraham's not a Jew. But he is what every Jew wants to be. That's 
everyone's I'm, I'm the son of Abraham. He said, but he's not he's not Jewish. He is a God believer, but he's not Jewish. Can yes. I, yeah. Go ahead. Jump. Jump. Like, that bothered me for years. That people did not consider Paul as smart as Socrates and Plato. I mean, Socrates and Plato. I mean, what what is the deal? This guy is a genius for taking the Old Testament and getting uh, substitutionary atonement, getting all the things that we now take for granted. It all came from Paul. How did he get that? Go to the book of Galatians. Take a look. When he, when he gets knocked off his horse on the way he drove to Damascus, he goes to, Galatians says, Arabia, which is the equivalent of Sinai, in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And he stays there three years. Go to Galatians, read how many times it says revealed. It was revealed to me. I didn't get this from anybody. God took an instrument, Paul, Saul at that time, that was on the fast track to becoming a chief priest among Jews, who was steeped in it. He, he knew it forward and backwards. And that's the only person that God could take that could then take it and take it to the next level. But it was all revealed to him, I'm convinced, it was all revealed to him by Jesus. He got every bit of it from Jesus. I just I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean it's you know, Paul Paul, Paul went to the Harvard of Judaism, which is the school of Gamaliel. Very small group of guys. It's the most elite school. And then like I said, and then Jesus comes to him, and then like I said, he goes three years in Arabia. Just, just like, like Elijah. Just like Elijah. Then he goes home for ten years. So you know, we're so Paul has 13 to 17 years to learn and think of this theology and listen to the Spirit, and which the revelations. And so I think Paul, it's the Spirit talking to Paul saying, here's, here's what I meant. When, when, you, when, you, when you memorize the book of Leviticus, which he did, here's what I meant when I said that. Not, not here's how they interpret it now. Here, here's what I really meant. Here's the way you're supposed to do this. Because when you look at the Old Testament, it's, it's full of that. If, here's how you're supposed to treat people. They don't. The Jews don't. But, you know, they're, they're like us. You know, it's all about but money, sex, and power. That's what, they're, that's what they, instead of service, instead of godliness, they chase money, sex, and power. And I think that's, and Paul understands that. Like, through, through revelation, through study, through being Paul, and he comes up with this, these applications that we not, that form the basis of our religion. All right. It's time. Next week is. We begin the real. The real Bible. Yes. What are you you're teaching next week? Aren't you? Mark. Mark. Book of Mark. Which we've been doing on Sunday morning, which is kind of cheap. Yeah. Except I don't agree with Josh on you.